All right, that's a good thing. And then I'll do a short countdown. I'll do kind of the uh, introduction, then I'll do the uh, detailed introduction of what you have. Um, and uh, I'll say something like, hey, um, I know we've talked before, but tell us your backstory and how you got involved in the Shroud. And then um, and then we'll go, from, we'll go from there. Did you want, you sent me all those slides, which by the way, uh, I got to tell you, I was very impressed. That is a really good work. And uh, it made a lot of sense. I read through them when you first sent them, and then I was just rereading them this morning. And and uh, I very impressive. So good, good work. Very good work. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I was uh, kind of dub doubling up because I'm doing a similar presentation, but less detailed on the reason and theology show mm. next week. So, um, but that I'm doing the history of the shroud. I've got 20 minutes to cover all of the history of the shroud. Twenty minutes of science. Good luck so, with uh, that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we'll see. Uh, we'll see yeah. what I can do. Yeah, well, you know what? <clears throat> this is not for our, <laughs> not on our talk. But I, um, one of the things I was thinking about because uh, I've got a talk coming up in New York in a couple of weeks, and I was thinking about what are the major events related to the shroud. And uh, so obviously, you know, 33 AD or whatever your date is that you want to use, then, um, you know, maybe 1204, probably not. I mean, it's 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 interesting. It's important, certainly. But, uh, you know, definitely the fire, the Chambury fire. Yeah. And um, and then maybe the uh, Secundo Pia picture and then Sterp and then the radio carbon dating uh, disaster. So maybe those are the four events. And so I'm thinking about when I do my thing, I'm going to talk about those four. So, uh, cause you can't, I mean, how do you, you, you can't, you can't do it all. And in, in, especially not in 20 minutes, that's impossible. Exactly. Yeah. There's a, there's a lot of selection, but yeah, my, my main thing, you've kind of seen my strategy. It's kind of give an overview, like, okay, like here are the main categories uh, that I'm going to pick two or three yeah. of the main ones and just kind of, Go over that but otherwise yeah for for me covering the evidence is uh it's just impossible when we've got yeah, 18 yeah. on one side and three or four on the other so yeah 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 well and the history you know two thousand years of history is um you know there's a lot and and you can you can you can peel back layers and layers and layers of detail on on any of those individual events and yeah. uh you know so it's kind of tough um so uh what? One thing that helps is I've only really got a thousand years to worry about because I, I never focus on once we get to the 1350s, I'm like, well, that's uncontroversial. So I just let the I, I never get into that part. So that's interesting on my end. It's always the controversial aspect that I focus on. But mm. you're right. There's an entire thousand years of shroud history that I didn't <laughs> even touch. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And um and then you know then it, you're right then that's the controversial part because nobody nobody knows uh and the further you go back i mean you know i always use the analogy i don't remember what i had for dinner last night so how am i how is anybody supposed to know what happened two thousand years ago exactly yeah yeah it's uh yeah our memories are well you know what funnily enough i find when people get older though like uh my grand my grandpa he's 98 just turned 98 a few days ago and uh he remembers stuff from the 1930s way better than he does like yesterday so it's funny sometimes our memories uh, of the distant past are uh, clear mm. yeah yeah well but i've also determined that uh the things that i remember from let's say you know 20 years ago 
uh, when I start talking about them, then my wife will go, but guy, you didn't tell me this or no, 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 I don't think that happened. So what we think we remember is uh, as accurate may actually not be that accurate. Who knows? Yeah, no, that's, yeah. that is true. Yeah. Cause it's uh, we our long-term memories. We focus, Richard Bauckham has done a study on, on how memory works in terms of the gospel traditions and depending on what, what it is and stuff. Right. So it, it's, it's not so much we remember the first thing. It's once we form that memory, the first recounting really plays the large role of how we remember it. So if our first recounting of that event is off, then it'll be off forever kind of thing. So. Oh, no kidding. I thought that, is, that is interesting. That is very interesting. All right. Well, let's get started. Uh, okay. We can talk one, forever one, on, on one this. Quick we can, question. Yeah. One quick question for you just before we begin. And uh, you mentioned that you were going to speak to Cameron Bertuzzi. I'm assuming I said no. I well, I uh, I didn't get a response. So what I uh, I sent him an email and uh, and he didn't answer the email. Um, I've and actually I've gotten uh, an, uh, uh, other emails from him, but I never got a response on that one. So I don't know what happened. Um, I can try again, maybe in a month or two or something like that. Or um, That's okay. it, I don't want to bug him if he's not. No, I, you know it's it's weird. Uh, you know who knows what what's going on in their heads and stuff like that. For me, I mean, I'm. You know, I I answer everybody. I'm I, I'm I want to meet with everybody. I want to talk to everybody, and and yeah. uh, I I even did a um, an interview with somebody that I was like a little bit hesitant about. And so uh, uh, anyway, it is what it is. So um, you know, and and um, so I don't know. Yeah. So yeah, because yeah, I'm here. Yeah, and I'm trying to get with uh, Nancy Grace uh, on something as well, and. Uh, you know, most likely the non-answer means no. So fair enough. Cool. Even though she's a friend of mine and whatever, you know, it, it, it's, it, it, it is what it is. Yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting. I, I'm looking forward to going over the show you did with the Mormon. Uh, it's a different perspective. So I haven't seen yeah. that yet. Yeah. Yeah. With uh, Robert Starling. Yeah. He was, uh, he was interesting and he had a, he had a fascinating experience, but, uh, he'll you know it's in the video but he he was uh he got over to italy and <laughs> he was gonna he was supposed to go there to take pictures and that was the sole reason he was supposed to go and then the uh the um uh the customs the italian customs confiscated his camera <laughs> <laughs> oh no oh no yeah they're, i remember they're strict in egypt uh especially yeah yeah, uh, so, yeah. yeah. So it was, he had to leave, he scrounged, but he, he survived. He made it. He did it. It it was a, it is a funny story. So you'll get a kick out of it. (laughs) So if you got anything like that, bring them on. (laughs) There we go. Yeah. Good stuff. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So, uh, all right. Um, well, so anyway, I'll do a countdown intro. I think you'll know. And like I said, so, uh, ready, ready. All right. So three, two, one. Hi, I'm Guy Powell, and welcome to the next episode of The Backstory on the Shroud of Turin. If you haven't already done so, please visit GuyPowell.com and sign up for more episodes. I am the author of the new book, The Only Witness, A History of the Shroud of Turin. It is a historical fiction tracing a possible yet plausible history of the Shroud over the last two millennia. Today, we're speaking with Dale Glover. He's a shroud researcher and has a very interesting connection to the shroud. So let me tell you a little bit about Dale. 
Uh, Dale is absolutely and sincerely interested in seeking religious truth. For years, he has studied to seek out the truth about God's existence, the existence and nature of the afterlife, and which religion might be true and or endorsed by God. In the end, he came to the conclusion that Christianity is the religion that God wants him to follow and believe. He hopes to help other real seekers in their journey to finding the same truth that he did. And his blog and podcast is also called Real Seekers. So, uh, Dale, welcome and so good to have you on. Awesome. Yeah, thanks for having me on again, uh, Guy. This is, uh, I'm a little amazed because this is the second time. You, you've kind of had the first round of putting up with me, but uh, you were good enough to have me on again. So <laughs> there you go. I know. What was wrong with it? It must have been a weak moment or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely. You know, that, uh, it, and this is getting a little bit off, but uh, you sent me a PowerPoint of some of your thinking and uh, very impressive and very, very impressive. So uh, good logic. Uh, framework and everything related to it. I was, uh, I was, I enjoyed reading it. So thanks for sending that. Uh, but in any case, uh, uh, I know we've already talked about it once. But tell us how you got involved in the in the shroud. Uh, what's your backstory on the shroud of Turin? Yeah. So as you could tell from the the little intro blurb there, so I, I kind of began my quest, religious research quest, uh, around two thousand nine, two thousand ten, and. From there, I was looking at the various religions and the positive and negative evidences for and against those religions. And um, obviously for me, uh, one of the four positive evidences in favor of Christianity was the Shroud of Turin. And um, like most people on here, it was Gary Habermas who really uh, even put the Shroud on the map. Before that, oh, it's Catholic stuff. I don't believe in that stuff, right? But uh, when I saw that he was taking it seriously, that really forced me to look into it and I started getting involved with people like Barry Schwartz and really learning all of the scientific evidence behind it. So yeah, I was amazed at, you know, the image formation question was really what, uh, what interested me even more so than the historicity of the shroud type deal. So yeah, uh, that played a role. I, I, in the end, I came out to my 53.14% probability that Christianity is true with my Bayes theorem. And uh, I became a Christian ever since. So, yeah. Fantastic. Well, you know, uh, we're going to try and stay away from statistics, though, today, because it's statistics that really messed up the radiocarbon dating. And and, yeah. and I still don't get it all. I, you know, I, 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 I'm, I, I don't know. I deal with a lot of statistics today and I still have trouble with it. But uh, uh, yeah. in any yeah. case, you, you came up with a uh, uh, an approach to studying the shroud called the minimal relevant features or mrf tell us a little bit about that all right well let me just share my screen you're mentioning the slides so i'll sure. start absolutely with first question um is that popping up it is it's perfect all right awesome so so yeah so in terms of the first question uh last time i was on your show we really went into a lot of detail on my minimal relevant features approach and the theory behind it but just to kind of recap um for today um so similar to dr gary habermas's minimal facts approach for the resurrection and evaluating the historical evidence i've developed what i call this minimal relevant features features approach to studying the shroud of trends images so 
essentially this is um, break it. I break it down into two fundamental aspects. Uh, you know, as Mike Lacona says, there are facts and there's method. So in terms of the facts, these are what I'm referring to as the minimal relevant features. So, you know, these are the physical and chemical properties of the shrouds, body and bloodstain images that were kind of discovered by Sterp in 1978 and, and uh, subsequent to that. And there's really two criteria to qualify as an MRF. Number one, you have to be highly evidenced and substantiated in credible peer-reviewed science journals. And secondly, at least two thirds of informed experts, whether I don't care about your worldview, doesn't matter whether you're a skeptic or pro shroud. Um, if you're an informed expert, about two thirds of the experts accept this as a fact. If, if you fit these two criteria, then I call you a minimal relevant feature. Um, in terms of the methodology aspect, so this is where I'm looking at, okay, well, how do we explain those facts? You know, what, what is the image forming mechanism? And in order to evaluate the mechanisms, this is where I employ a best, an inference to the best explanation. So I assess them, you know, in terms of plausibility. So this just refers to, you know, is, is the image forming mechanism consistent with our background knowledge, what we know outside of uh, shroud studies and how physical mechanisms work or, you know, whatever we're, mechanism we're looking at. Um, also, is it unique um, or not? You know, are there precedents of similar shroud-like images? Um, in terms of explanatory scope and explanatory powers, so that's where we're, explanatory scope is where we're looking at the quantity. How, how many of the minimal relevant features can the painting hypothesis explain or account for versus radiation hypotheses, whatever it is? Um, obviously, the more minimal relevant features you explain, uh, the better. And if you fail even one, obviously you're a failure as an explanation. Um, explanatory power is more about the quality. And I think this is the most important uh, criterion myself, um, maybe with explanatory scope up there as well. But this is really talking about how well does the painting hypothesis or powder rubbing or direct contact, whatever it is, how well does this explain those minimal relevant features? Does it do so with any vagueness or ambiguity? Um, does it just outright fail to explain it? Um, and then my last criterion is simplicity, right? So the, the least amount of ad hoc or unproven assumptions a hypothesis um, incorporates, the better or more likely that hypothesis is to be true. Um, so, you know, yeah, this refers, we'll see that several hypotheses have these ad hoc components and you really want to reduce that down um, because the more unevidenced assumptions you're employing, well, that, that makes it less likely to be true relative to other um, explanations. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's it for the first question. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, and I like that. I also like the kind of the two-dimensional approach of uh, what you have there, the explanatory scope, how many facts or uh, pieces of evidence uh, apply, and then the quality of each of those, because I think you do have to have a, a you know, a, a, a quantity and a quality related to it. And, and uh, although one of the things, I guess, on the explanatory power, though, you... Uh, quality can sometimes be subjective to the the viewer or to the 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 uh, the, 
the author or what have you how do you how do you remove that kind of uh, potential ambiguity or potential bias uh, from the from the viewer yeah so I, so I think that's going to be inherent um, it, you know that kind of possible subjective bias will be an inherent issue no matter what side you're on to some extent because uh, at the end of the day we're employing abductive reasoning right which is just means an inference to the best explanation and there is always going to be some element of subjectivity there but in order to mitigate against that bias this is why we present our reasons and on this front you know it can be entirely objectively scientific that certain fact uh, certain hypotheses it's a little ambigu ambiguous whether they can actually explain something or we can outright prove look it just outright fails like the the painting as we'll see in a bit the the painting hypothesis just outright inherently fails to explain the superficiality or something like that. So there are always, there's always going to be some element of subjectivity, but we can mitigate against it by presenting our reasons and to whatever extent we're able to basing that on objective scientific evidence or findings and stuff that we know. Yeah, fantastic. Um, well, you know, now that you, we've got the uh, the PowerPoint going, why don't we do this? Why don't we, there's about six or eight different um, uh, methodologies, well, not methodologies, but uh, hypotheses that you've got. And uh, maybe let's uh, let's just pick out maybe two or three. Why don't we talk about the painted one, the painting one, because that's the one that a lot of people uh, kind of, uh, you know, ascribe to and say, no, 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 it's just painted. So let's, let's maybe talk about that one and uh, go from there. Okay. All right, cool. So, um, the first thing to establish when we're evaluating the painting hypothesis is we have to, again, what are those facts? What are these minimal relevant features? And I've, uh, got my own kind of, um, Excel file, but I'll just list uh, a few of them here. So number one is what's been called the photo negative. The, so the lights and darks on the Shroud of Turin have been reversed. This is what you see in those black and white pictures uh, from 1898 going back to Secondo Pia. Um, we also have body image uniformity. So in terms of color intensity, every single body image fibrille is colored exactly uniformly in terms of the color. Uh, one isn't darker than another or lighter than another. Um, what creates the lights and darks is based on the concentration of colored fibrils. Um, we also have body image uniform density of color. So this means on the frontal and dorsal side, the maximum darkness or color densities are uniform. They're the same. Um, we also have the topographical information, otherwise known as the three-dimensionality. There's topographical or 3D information encoded into the Shroud's body images. Um, we also have this key one, the vertically mapped wrapping distortions, as proven by Dr. John Jackson in his paper. Um, so it just means that, it, that whatever encoded the process went in a straight line or a curvy linear uh, encodation path. We also have body image superficiality, so it's superficial on a fabric, thread, and fiber level. Um, so yeah, in terms of the thread level, only the top two to three fibrils have any color on them. It doesn't penetrate deeper into the thread. 
Um, same with the fibrils. It's only something like 0.2 micrometers, I believe. Uh, so it's only on that primary cell wall of an individual fibril. And remember, these fibrils have the thickness of a human hair. Um, additionally, this is going to be relevant for the painting. There's no capillary flow or action evident. And the body images haven't reached the saturation point. That means they're not as dark as they could be. In fact, it's been quantified by Sterp. They're maybe about 23%, if I remember right. The darkest part of the shroud the, around the nose and face is only about 23% saturated. Um, you know, it could be a heck of a lot darker than it is. Um, there's no body sides, but there are continuous um, body images, including in areas that wouldn't be touching a naturally draped cloth. There's body image diffuseness, meaning there's no definable borders around the images, um, but yet it has a relatively high resolution. Um, eighth, there's no brush strokes or directionality present. There's no evident layering. Um, as you can imagine, that's relevant for painting, as we'll see. Um, and it doesn't fluoresce under ultraviolet lights. Uh, in terms of the blood stains, um, so these are positive images. And these are not superficial. They penetrate all the way to the back of the cloth. And really the two most important features, I think, are there's no body images underneath the blood stains. So a lot of pro shroud, it's debatable, but a lot of pro shroud people believe the best explanation is that the blood stains were deposited on the cloth first in whatever way you think. And the blood stains interfered with whatever process created the body images. So therefore it prevented body images from forming underneath those blood stains and the serum retraction rings. Um, also, there's no major damage or smearing or alteration that appears on the uh, shroud's blood stains. Um, and finally, uh, no paint or pigments, dyes, dry powder, photosensitizers, or sufficient decomposition liquids have been found on the shroud. Okay, so, um, you were asking uh, in terms of the image forming hypotheses, there are three major categories, right? So there's ordinary artistic mechanisms. This is where the painting hypothesis falls in. Um, these require some kind of art artistic in design of some sort, a human artist to create the images in some way. There are also ordinary naturalistic mechanisms. These are just involve a dead corpse being put in the shroud and then the laws of nature take over in one way or the other and create the images. And then finally, we have the third category, the extraordinary or supernatural mechanisms. And this is where God is essentially the intelligent designer. And he created the images using these extraordinary mechanisms. And you can see I've done sort of a chart, just kind of see the traditional painting under the ordinary artistic mechanisms. You also have powder rubbing, scorch, protophoto, um, all, all of these types underneath the various categories. But let's, to your question, Guy, um, let's look at the traditional painting hypothesis then. So, okay, so this was a hypothesis by uh, famous shroud skeptic, Walter McCrony, as I call him. And um, basically traditional painting was the first shroud skeptical hypothesis that tried to explain the shroud images. Um, it started way back with Bishop Pierre Darcy in 1389. And Walter McCrone came along after 1978, and 
he basically obtained some of the shroud samples that were given to him and he kind of used his methodology polarized light microscopy and what he did is he said he saw that the body images were composed of iron oxide um, and therefore they must have been made of some kind of iron oxide or red ochre pigment as a, a tempera paint and Therefore, he concluded, well, yeah, the Shroud's a medieval painting. Someone literally painted using this red ochre or iron oxide pigment, the Shroud's body and bloodstain images. And he further claimed to find vermilion pigment on a single blood sample and concluded, well, maybe the bloodstains must have been touched up with this red vermilion pigment as well. Um, so it's important to note Macron only published his results in the journal Microscope, uh, with one exception, but yeah, the vast majority of his papers were published in the paper that the journal he was the editor of. So this is not proper peer review in science. Mm. Um, so that's a major thing. Whereas STERP, we've got 26 papers in some of the world's most prestigious journals, applied optics, um, you know, Canadian journal of forensics, stuff like that it has nothing to do with the STERP team. These are just secular unattached peer reviewed papers. Okay, so one of the things that I think is kind of interesting with the Macron, um, you know, with finding uh, uh, iron oxide on there and then also uh, finding the vermilion. And uh, just to kind of highlight wh where where does uh, uh, where do you think those uh, came from or what do you think happened there? Yes. Um, so in terms of the. Uh... Um, I'm getting to that, but yeah, I'll, I'll say it now. So okay. Yeah, no, it's fair. Sorry. Fair enough. Go ahead. No, no problem. Um, okay, cool. So, um, I'll just answer it now. So very quickly, like the iron on the shroud, um, Walter McCrone claimed that this was exclusively in the body images and bloodstain images and not on the cloth. But as we'll find out, Sterp, uh, thoroughly tested this and McCrone was unaware at the time that x-ray fluorescence studies had proved conclusively that yes, there was this iron on the shroud, um, but it was uniform along with calcium and strontium in both non-image and image areas. So this iron, it's been pr scientifically proven to my mind beyond all reasonable doubt had nothing to do with paint or pigments. Instead, it was a result of the redding process. Um, where you you put the flax plants in the pond or a river or something like that, and it absorbs these um, these things through the redding process. There, mm -hmm. um, in terms of the vermilion pigment, so this this is uh, non natural. The only way to explain this is to say, yep, there is vermilion paint on it. But again, he only found it on one single sample, sample three CB, and. You know, from that, he concluded that, well, all of the blood stains must have been made of vermilion pigment or touched up with this, despite the fact that Sterp studied all of the blood stains all over the place with spectral and microchemical processes. There's not a drop of vermilion pigment in any other of the shroud samples. So it's it's obvious that this is just contamination. And um, mm. I laugh. it's funny, Mark Antinacci, I'm going to steal your joke here, but it, it, to say that because you, you know, Macron found one sample of vermilion on a single sample of the shroud's blood and then conclude that all the blood stains are a thing uh, made of vermilion, 
that's like saying, well, we found uh, in, an insect's legs on the shroud too is contamination, but no, I guess you must believe the shroud's body images are composed of insect parts. Um, that's the equivalent type of illogical. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. And one of the things too that, uh, you know, as, as I've been studying the shroud uh, is the shroud is a, uh, is what's called a primary relic. And so then uh, there were a lot of copies made and painted copies and, and whatever the, the method was to make the copy. And then those copies were physically laid on top of the shroud so that they would become what's called a secondary uh, relic. And that would make them more valuable. And, and then if you were, you know, a, a friend or another royal person to the Duke of Savoy or whatever, then he could say, well, we, we layered the, we laid the cloth on your painting on top of this and then it, uh, and then gave it to you because we wanted it to have the most, uh, you know, the religious significance as possible. And so it's possible then, if that's the case, that the vermilion, uh, was transferred, uh, from one of these paintings as it was being laid on top of the cloth. And it's interesting to think about what other sources might be for some of these, uh, you know, these contaminations, and that might be one of them. Yeah, ab absolutely. Barry, I mean, Barry was famous. Um, he's even got a photo of one of these instances where a painting is being laid down on the shroud to, uh, you know, sanctify it or what whatever they do, turn it into a second order relic and that sort of thing. So, yeah, I mean, look, the, there were lots of contaminants found. Like I said, insect parts, there was a modern felt tip pen mark found, um, <laughs> all sorts. Of, you know, I think it was about 27 contaminants in total were discovered. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's easy to see that contamination is the most probable explanation. Mm. For it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and especially over, you know, you think about um, the cloth had been handled over 2000 years, had been touched, has been displayed, had been used as a model, had been uh, made to transfer its secondary relic or primary relic status all and anything, uh, including then, of course, there would be some, you know, bugs that might have gotten in or might have even been mold. There's water stains. There are so many different contaminants that could be there that it it makes a lot of sense that uh, that a vermilion could also be a a, a, a a contaminant. Of course. Yeah. And and they they found other other contaminants. And again, everyone admits that they have nothing to do with how the shroud was made. So it's it's just you need to be have consistent reasoning here mm. and engage in a little critical thinking. And, and that's what I like about what, and that's what I like about what you've done here in, in, in your analysis. It, I'm really, like I said, I'm really impressed with what you've got here. So let, let me let you get back to, uh, to the story here. No, no, no problem. Awesome. So you, you saved me time in the future. Cause yeah, that, I have a slide coming up that says all, everything we just said. So look, he, he, totally independent of the question of composition. Uh, you can see the painting hypothesis fails miserably. I, I think it's there, there's one that's possibly worse, known as the boiling hypothesis from the Renaissance period. But this, uh, the painting hypothesis, is literally the worst of all modern shroud skeptical theories. Uh, I don't think it clearly passes even one of the minimal relevant features in terms of providing an explanation. Um, even with negativity, I'm trying to be as charitable as I can. And it, it's, it's questionable, you know, why, why on, why on earth would an artist 
paint a photo negative image with lights and darks being reversed and lefts and rights being reversed. Um, and it's totally unique. This is implausible. There, there are no historical precedents for something like this until the shroud pops up and then sub some subsequent copies, people copying the shroud, they display this feature. So that's at best uh, questionable. Um, mm. And on everything else, it just, it fails, right? In terms of uniformity, painting method cannot achieve this because he'll apply the paintbrush with different um, varying degrees of intensity and therefore more foreign material or paint will end up in some spots versus others. There would be this patchwork. Um, it would not be uniform where every single Fabril is colored exactly the same intensity of color. There would be, you know, no brush strokes or directionality. Uh, that's impossible. Every other painting in existence has this. Uh, they all have definable borders, so they wouldn't have this image diffuseness. Um, you know, the three-dimensionality vertical mapping, it's just virtually impossible that any artist could create images with these features that we see on the shroud. And what's amazing is that the stirrup scientists even conducted experiments to test this. They, they even hired on a bunch of certified forensic artists, and they were totally unable to recreate the, these features of the Shroud's images. And that's with cheating, right? They, they got to correct their work because a medieval <laughs> artist, he didn't have a VP8 image analyzer to check, hey, am I getting this three-dimensionally correct or not? The forensic artists could do that and go back and redo it. And they were given anchor points to help them in reproducing this feature, something a medieval artist wouldn't have had. And yet these certified forensic artists still failed. Um, and that, yeah, so that it's just virtually impossible. Human beings don't have the motor skills, the hand-eye-brain coordination right. abilities necessary to create this. Yeah, um, and then um, uh, you also mentioned in the other uh, page, you had the capillary effects. If you were going to have uh, paint, it would then seep down. So that would then, you know, mean that the, the superficiality wouldn't count. And then uh, also I heard one, uh, I was reading about one the other day, which was if the material, if the linen cloth had been folded right there, if the paint was anywhere thick at the fold, it would crack. And there's no cracks in any of the image. So there's uh, even some mechanical things that that uh, that also basically refute the possibility that that, is, that this is a painting. Exactly. Yeah, that's a great point. I, I missed that one. So shame on me. Yeah, that that's another point. To, again, there, there's just so much that yeah. goes against yeah. the, uh, the painting hypothesis there, as you can see, right? Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. How, how, um, go ahead. No, no, uh, no, go one ahead. last point, and then we can move on. But uh, with the blood stains, just something there. Look, ultraviolet fluorescence spectral tests have proven that these things have a, uh invisible serum retraction ring. Now, if Walter McCrone is correct, and he didn't paint those using real blood, but he used pigments, uh, how on God's green earth could this medieval genius know about invisible serum retraction rings and, mm. and somehow paint them on with paint so that modern scientists can only see them with ultraviolet fluorescence? That's impossible. Explain what the, uh, the uh, serum rings are, just to make sure that we uh, all understand. Yeah, so when uh, when you have blood uh, that is 
on a surface or something like that. It, as part of the congealing process, it, it retracts. And when it, when it retracts, it uh, squeezes out this clear liquid serum. And this forms a ring around the blood stains that we call the serum retraction rings. Now, the point here, here is that you can't see these with the naked eye. You can only see them, you know, like in CSI uh, shows with the ultraviolet fluorescence where they, they show up and stuff like that, the proteins fluoresce or whatever. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, positing someone painting that with pigment, uh, get out of here. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, they would have had to have had uh, the understanding, certainly, of the uh, of that of that number one, and then number two, they would have had to have known how to paint with a some kind of a clear liquid, which is uh, also kind of interesting. And then I think um, I think Pam Moon also had one, and that was that the water stains would also affect the. If it were paint, the water stains that are evident throughout would also affect the image, the painted image, if it were out of paint. And because they're not affected by the water stains, that's also one other feature that that kind of comes out of the uh, uh, the fact that it's it can't be a paint. That's a great point. Yeah. So like uh, I'm going to be when I present my thing on um, I'm going to be on uh, S.J. Thomason's channel later this month going into detail on the painting hypothesis. And one of the things I left out of here just for time is there's, even without stirp, throw all of this stuff in the garbage. We can still falsify the painting hypothesis because back in 1532, we had a natural experiment. So in the first place, there was a raging fire and this affected the shroud. Uh, parts of silver, the silver case burned right through the shroud uh, of Turin. And in the first place, the fire didn't alter or do or chemically react with the images at all. And if it was painted, it would definitely have done so. Now, um, Macron tried to counter this and he said, oh, well, it was insulated because they folded the shroud up like 40 times or something like that. But if you think about it, again, that silver burnt right through the cloth. So it doesn't matter how many times it was folded. It wasn't insulated because we have images right next to these scorch moles mm. and totally unaffected. And that's just also your, your point about, well, they also doused it in water during this fire. And look, the image isn't running or the color isn't migrating off as would be expected. If you, if you pour water on any kind of painting, the color is going to migrate off. It's going to, it's going to run off and it's going to be messed up. Um, mm. That's not what happened with the shroud. Yeah, absolutely. So um, why don't we do this? Let's pick uh, one other one. And uh, in interest of time, unless you've got more that you want to talk about the, the, um, the painting. And then otherwise uh, we, uh, what my personal uh, favorite is the, uh, the, the vertical columnization of the neutron particles with, with Rucker, but uh, whichever one you want to pick. So. Okay. Uh, totally up to you. So going to the, all right. Uh, oh yeah. Let's do Ray Rogers. Uh, my yard. Cause there's a new paper that came that's coming out or came out about that and i don't know how to pronounce the name but uh this maillard reaction let's do that one let's talk through that one okay awesome so 
So this is an example of an ordinary naturalistic mechanism, right? So dead corpse and just the laws of nature. Uh, it doesn't require any supernatural intervention or any artistic intervention. And it was first proposed by Ray Rogers. Um, Kelly Kearse has done an update where he's combining the Maillard reaction with uh, skin effects of some sort. So there's a bit of an update there. But in terms of Ray Rogers, he basically proposed this Maillard react chemical reaction um, where the body would give off certain gas as it was decomposing in the tomb and wrapped in the shroud. And it chemically reacted with a microscopically thin layer, contamination layer of starch. So in other words, what is the color on the shroud? It's, it's a caramelization, like caramels, the candy, that thing. That's, that's what the shroud color is that we see. And that was basically a byproduct. That's what produced the body images as the body decayed in the tomb. And Rogers, again, he's a pro shroud. He was the official stirp chemist there. And he demonstrated in his own experiments with small samples of linen that the mayor reaction did indeed create this yellow-brown coloring that we seem to see with the Shroud of Turin. Um, it's also important to note that there were found starch impurities. Some starch impurities were found during the STIRP investigation. Um, uh, so that's kind of supportive evidence for his theory here. So just to assess it, um, in terms of negativity, green check mark, it, it does create this minimal relevant feature. In terms of the body image uniformity, I assigned a questionable status because if you think about it again, remember it, it involves a corpse lying down covered by the shroud. And because of that, um, there is a questionable element about the maximal uniform densities. Just by sheer gra the force of gravity, we would expect the dorsal image to be darker than the frontal image because you know that's that's operate the force of gravity operating upon the body and forcing it closer to the cloth and that sort of thing. So I don't think it would be able to account for uniform density. It's or it's questionable. Um, in terms of the three dimensionality and vertical mapping, this Sorry, is let me uh, let me interrupt you. That yeah, that's interesting. I was always thinking of uniformity uh, in the in the the lateral direction, not in the vertical direction. So what you're saying is that it, um, you would expect with the Maillard uh, reaction that there would be a darker intensity on the bottom, on the dorsal image, than there would be on the frontal. Uh, yeah, thank you for that. That's very fascinating. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, that that's kind of the Achilles heel for all gas, natural gas diffusion or direct contact mm -hmm. theses in terms of uniformity. So, yeah, um, and it totally fails on on the 3D and vertical mapping and. Uh, it just, it's impossible. These gas models would not convey topographical information just inherently. They, they don't do that, right? And in terms of the vertical mapping, I mean, you, you heard in, um, if I don't know if your audience is familiar, but I did a debate with an atheist called the Great Shroud Debate. And one of the major things about the uh, objections to the shroud wrapping a body is that, well, there would be... Um, uh, sorry, uh, gases diffuse in all directions equally. So, you know, naturally speaking, they don't just vertically emit, um, you know, and that sort of thing. And so, yeah, it would, we would have a wider face known as the Agamemnon effect, where the face would be fatter because it's wrapped around the body and gases would diffuse 
from the sides of the face, the sides of the body, equally with just the vertical direction. So, and guess what? Ray Rogers himself fully admits that his method fails on this front. And it was because of this, he said that, well, the Maillard reaction at best is only a partial explanation or solution. It has to work with some other mechanism that could guide the gases uh, to create these minimal relevant features. Um, in terms of superficiality, uh, yes, this gets a green check mark because if it's true that there was a micro thin superficial starch contamination layer, well then the chemical reaction would only take place where that uh, starch layer was. So yeah, he gets a green check mark there. Um, so yeah, um, in terms of the plausibility, the Maillard reaction that Rogers proposed would not take place unless the body's temperature was between 38 to 40 degrees Celsius. Um, but that's implausible because by the time the body would have been wrapped in the shroud, you know, taken from the cross, wrapped in the shroud, take, placed in the tomb, uh, presumably washed as well, it would really be unlikely that the body would have maintained that high of a temperature. So this makes Ray Rogers' theory implausible on that background knowledge. Uh, in terms of explanatory scope and power, we already saw it fails outright to explain the three-dimensionality and the uh, vertically mapped wrapping distortions. Um, and in terms of the simplicity, there is an ad hoc element in that, look, all that was found by Sterp were certain starch impurities. But Ray Rogers is assuming without any proof or evidence that, oh, well, that proves there was this micro-thin superficial starch layer over the entirety of the shroud cloth. That's totally unproven. They, the, we don't have evidence for that. So, so that's an ad hoc component that he needs for his theory to work. So yeah, uh, in a nutshell, that's my assessment of the Maillard reaction. Yeah, and I think too, um, uh, kind of to your point about the gravity on the bottom versus the top, uh, there also has to be some kind of a verticality uh, if the sides, for example, of your body, of your rib cage or of your legs were also emitting gases, um, I, they would have to, I guess, go up or go down. Uh, and maybe they're doing that just based on um, a convection where those gases are slightly warmer and then they're going to go up. And uh, maybe because on the bottom side, they're coming out and they're eventually going to go up, but the cloth is directly touching those so that it it has to go through the cloth before it can do anything. Um, I think I think those, that verticality also is uh, definitely a critical uh, consideration here. I, I think I read a comment on Kelly Kearse's paper that there may have even been some, maybe it was ionized in some fashion and there was some kind of an electric charge or a field that would maybe have pulled things in a positive or a negative. Uh, but um, uh, I've seen some of the images, I think, and Ray Rogers actually did them and they've been repeated where you actually can get a reasonably good image of a face using this reaction. And so I was uh, a little bit surprised about that, that, uh, that it was able to actually generate an image on a cloth and one that actually looks like a, a facial image. And that's all they did. But it, it actually, I was a little surprised at how well it came out. Yeah, so in terms of the vertical stuff, I have two things to say, right? So one thing that I neglected to mention is that, 
and Barry's probably going to be saying, what's wrong with you, Dale, is Ray Rogers postulated that perhaps it wasn't wrapped around mitigating against this wraparound effect problem because maybe there was spice bundles in solid form and this propped up the cloth away from the sides of the body. So that, again, I still would say, I'm still going to say it's going to fail because it's not going to be precisely um, mm. only the body sides, but it does help mitigate some of that problem away if true. Um, the second thing in terms of the electrostatic mechanism. So this is an example of uh, Barry Schwartz, for example, for a time liked Dan Spicer and E.T. Totten's electric charge separation mechanism. So this is where they kind of posited uh, an electric vertically collimated electrical field that helped guide the gas and create, uh, you know, better, better, highly resolved images and that sort of thing. So that um, is another option, but I would just say that I've evaluated that myself and even those electrostatic mechanisms fail to account for all the minimal relevant features. Mm. Yeah. Very good. Uh, excellent. Um, all right, so let's go to my favorite one, and that's uh, the Rucker uh, one with the uh, with the proton or the neutron absorption hypothesis. Awesome. So, so this is one that I personally like, and um, this is an example of an extraordinary or supernatural mechanism where God is the one who's creating the images, and it uh, uses charged particle radiation. So. Bob Rucker's version is called the vertically collimated radiation burst hypothesis. And um, this one, it used charged particles like protons or electrons and that sort of thing, um, along with some partial electrostatic uh, mechanisms. And it basically says, look, there is this vertically collimated radiation burst at the moment of Jesus's resurrection. And um, this caused the uh, interacted with the cloth. So uh, basically, it was vertically collimated radiation burst from the body, and the charged particles in the burst caused a stat electrostatic discharge from the top superficial fibers that were facing the body, um, both the frontal side and on the dorsal side. And this caused uh, heating or an ozone effect, which is what ultimately causes that yellow-brown coloring of the shroud that we see today. Um, now, Bob's hypothesis is really great because it not only explains the images, it also helps to scientifically explain, if true, the erroneous carbon-14 dating that we got. Why did it give us this date of 1260 to 1390? Well, um, if the charged particles hypothesis is true, not only were the protons creating these images, but there was also neutrons in Jesus' body, and these were included in that burst. And these neutrons would pass right through the cloth and bounce uh, on the wall, the limestone walls of the, the cave. And this would affect or alter the carbon-14 um, uh, amounts in the cloth itself. Bada boom, bada bing, this explains why we uh, got this erroneous medieval carbon dating. Um, and also, he has an idea about the blood. Um, I'm not totally sure where I stand. Mark Antinacci has his own idea where the bloodstains supernaturally uh, disappeared and then reappeared on the cloth. Um, Bob Rucker is saying, no, look, with my one mechanism, if there was this radiation burst vertically out from the body, the bloodstains also, just by sheer force of that mechanism, would have been 
boom, shoot it out onto the cloth in situ where they, where they look, where they are right. And the, without damage alteration and that sort of thing, it just would have been so rapid and intense. It would have just blasted the blood stains onto the cloth uh, where they are both on the dorsal and frontal sides. So, um, Bob Rucker's hypothesis is very simple. It, it covers all three of the aspects that we need to cover just from this one mechanism that he's suggesting. Um, okay, so yeah, number six. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so if you were to rank which one you think is the most explanatory and the second most and third mo most uh wh where do you where do you uh, come up uh with that or what yeah, you know, so what's I, your opinion on that yeah so i i so i definitely go for the radiation hypotheses i i'm currently leaning in favor of bob rucker's hypothesis i for a long time i really liked mark antinacci's historically consistent hypothesis which is essentially the same virtually the same um, the only one major difference, though, is that Mark Antinacci believes in the cloth collapse, whereas Bob Rucker says no, uh, that the cloth collapse can't be true. Um, and from where I'm looking at it right now, I'm, I'm still open to it, but it does look like there are problems with the cloth collapse. So uh, for that reason, I'm leaning towards Bob Rucker's radi mm. vertically culminated radiation burst. Yeah. 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 Same here. Um uh, although I um, I always have trouble with the edges of the body, and uh, in particular, if the body is, and I use the Star Trek analogy, and is uh, how does the mechanism determine the edge of the body? So, for example, there's blood beneath the skin, and there's blood above the skin, which we see in in all of the blood stains. And how did this mechanism know to only go to the surface of the skin and not include the blood that was on the skin? And um, and so I uh, and so that's one thing. The other one I have trouble with as well is if the cloth is physically touching the skin, how does this mechanism know not to take any of the cloth with it? So when I think about, you know, the transporter beam in Star Trek, how did that transporter beam know to take the shoes and not the floor underneath the shoes? How did it know exactly where that edge was? And uh, and how did it know to take the skin plus the clothing and um, and and then beam it up, so to speak? And so I, you know, I, 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 around the edges um, and obviously it's miraculous. So I'm OK with that. It's a God thing and it's miraculous and certainly, uh, you know, that he can do whatever he wants. But I always have trouble with how do you explain that the edge, the edges of each of, of, of that theory in particular. And then, of course, the disappearance of the body overall with any of the other theories is, um, uh, you know, there's there has to be. So like the Maillard, the Maillard I guess that's I don't know how you pronounce it. Um, has the the chemicals being exuded and the gases exuded from the body, but it it um, it doesn't necessarily explain the disappearance of the body. Whereas what I like a, a little bit, or actually a lot about uh, the Rucker, is that he kind of explains where all these neutrons that went from all the cells that were part of the body, and that's then where this shift in the carbon dating comes from in terms of the conversion of the nitrogen 14 into the carbon 14 
and and lastly his theory explains the the dating of the uh of the uh the carbon 14 dating from thir- uh, 1260 to 1390 exclamation point and it explains the radiocarbon dating of the sidarium of being in the uh i think it's the 7th century or the 8th century so it really is very explanatory whereas uh some of the other theories uh, don't consider what happened with the uh, with the sidarium, and this one actually does, and and that's actually a good point. So the the Maillard reaction doesn't explain how the carbon fourteen dating would be wrong, and it, none of the theories, including um, including uh, Joe Marino's uh, uh, invisible reweave, explain why the sidarium only gets a you know has an age of this in the seven hundreds. Because it it should have an age, you know, somewhere else, uh, you know, around the you know the zeros, and it has an age, you know, from the seven hundred. So that one doesn't get kind of explained, even though I do believe that there was a you know an invisible a, a very good likelihood that there was an invisible reweave or some kind of a reweave in that corner. Interesting. Yeah. It's so in terms of the carbon dating first. Yeah. Like I definitely see this as a plus, right? Because Bob's hypothesis is very simple. It it has a very wide explanatory scope with uh, less ad hoc assumptions. Whereas uh, someone like uh, Joe Marino or Ray Rogers, if you're going for a Maillard reaction or something like that. So the Maillard reaction, as we saw in and of itself is inadequate. You have to postulate some other secondary gu- natural guiding mechanism, such as the one Kelly Kears or, or Dan Spicer offer. Plus, you also have to explain these carbon dating. So plus you have an invisible reweave. Um, so it's, it's it's not as simple as Bob Rucker's. It doesn't explain the same mm. amount of data with the least amount. So that that's a possible consideration uh, that you need to consider there. Um, one interesting thing, yeah, like uh, in terms of the, I just wanted to ask you, like what are your thoughts? Because some people have said, uh, I haven't looked too much into this, but some people have said some of the bloodstains have actually been encoded in the same way as body images or something to that effect. Um, mm. What are your thoughts on on that? Because that was one of your objections there. So, Yeah, I hadn't heard that. Uh, so it may, maybe let me make sure I understand. You're saying that a blood stain actually has some image on it? Uh, no, it was encoded in the same way as one of the body images. This was a, in a paper from John Jackson. But again, I, mm. I haven't looked into it and hardcore kind of thing but uh yeah yeah sorry i haven't i haven't looked at that either i'll i'll definitely take a look at that um because uh it um i have no answer there so uh i can't help you there yeah 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 no no just wanted to see if that would yeah no i appreciate it um well so um uh we've got only a couple of minutes let's uh see if we can wrap this up and uh so any further thoughts or any other things that you want to bring up in general uh yeah so i think um just to get out of here so i think that when it comes to image formation the most important thing just stop sharing the screen there is um look we have to have a systematic way of approaching this question so look break it up into those as michael conis says you have facts and method right so how do we determine what the facts are that we can use to make a powerful strong case um i think the minimal relevant features is a great way to go about it and to gain consensus even from shroud skeptics who will say yeah that's a fact 
Um, and then in terms of method, we need that systematic way. And I employ the best explanation criteria to make an abductive inference. And I think that's a great way of, of um, approaching the various image forming hypotheses and seeing how they relate to each other, which one's better than the other. So, yeah. Mm. Yeah. And I like your your breakdown of where it's uh, potentially, uh, you know, a painted or a man-made image versus some kind of other miraculous. And um, and I like then, uh, you know, how you've broken them down for the miraculous side, because, you know, I, I as a shroud authenticist, I, there has to have been some kind of authentic, uh, some kind of of, uh, uh, you know, miraculous something that happened in there. And it may be that we never figure that out, but at least then the theories and the way you've broken it out, I think really makes a lot of sense. And, um, and thank you for, uh, being willing to present that and, uh, and, and, uh, and, and discuss through that. That was, uh, that was awesome. Um, in any case, so, uh, so thank you so much. Uh, I, I've, I've got to break off here. Uh, but thank you so much. Uh, very fascinating. And, uh, so where can they, where can my audience uh, reach you and learn more about you and some of your materials? Yeah, uh, so uh, my blog, uh, I'll have my PowerPoints on the blog. It's uh, realseekerministries.wordpress.com. Otherwise, you can find me on Rumble or YouTube. Just type in real seekers, plural, with uh, an S at the end, and you'll see my stuff um, all over the place. So, yeah. Fantastic. So, real seekers, ministries dot wordpress dot com uh so real it's it's stupid real seeker singular ministries dot wordpress dot com but on okay. youtube it's plural real seekers. okay so. yeah you know it's funny how you gotta uh, <laughs> figure that stuff out but uh yes thank you so uh, uh we have the uh that uh, link and we'll definitely put it into our uh into our show notes dale thank you so much and then to the audience uh certainly uh, if you want to reach out to Dale, please do so. And uh, and there's some really good stuff. And I like what I like about it is the logical organization of it, and then the the dissemination of the different facts about it. And that's uh, that's something that really uh, I think makes a big difference. So otherwise, uh, please stay tuned for many other videos in this series of the backstory on the Shroud of Turin. And please visit GuyPowell.com and sign up for more of these episodes. Uh, Dale, thank you so much. No problem. Thank you, Guy. Always a pleasure. So.